Welcome to this episode of Syracuse Speaks, The View from the AHL, a Syracuse Crunch-centric podcast for Raw Charge. I'm your host, Alex Ackerman, and let's get started. Obviously, we have quite a bit to talk about, seeing as the trade deadline was Monday. This is coming out a little bit earlier in the week. My partner in crime at Raw Charge, Justin, who covers Syracuse for that blog, is currently on vacation. So he asked if I could schedule Syracuse Speaks a little bit earlier in the week so that it could kind of count for his crunch corner. And I also knew that because I missed recording this podcast last week, I wanted to push myself to get it out a little bit earlier this week to kind of make up for the fact that I'm about a week off schedule right now. To get us started, I just kind of wanted to revisit a theory that I talked about the last time we got together. And I discussed this idea that I didn't really feel like I knew this team very well. I didn't really feel like I knew this team well enough to want to cheer for them when things were bad and to stay engaged when things weren't going well. And that in previous years, previous seasons, that's something we have had. I was discussing this with my friend Sunny a couple games ago. She made the comment that one of the places of discomfort that she has found is that we don't really have those older AHLers on the roster who are generally with a team for a couple of seasons who probably aren't going to be making it in the NHL, but who have a little bit more personality than those young prospects who are just trying to figure out how to play the pro game. There's a lot to be said about the talent in this organization and the talent that's in Syracuse, but when you hear these young prospects talk to the media or talk to the fans, they do tend to be kind of on the reserved side. It just seems like that could be one of the keys that I'm missing. Even if you look at when the Lightning came into town in 2012, they brought with them a host of AHL guys who got a cup of coffee in the NHL maybe once or twice during their time with the crunch. But in general, they were older guys who had a personality, who weren't afraid to show that personality, who could kind of be the voice of the team, who got to know the fans and got to know the area. I suppose looking at the current roster, the closest we can get to that is Daniel Walcott and Luke Wachowski. But two guys out of 20-some-odd people isn't necessarily going to give you that feeling that this is a team that you really know. Just kind of taking a quick look back, I looked at the roster through the last couple of years. I found guys in previous organizations, you know, way back when we were affiliated with Columbus. Well, if you're an old school fan, you know, we had guys like Mark Hardigan, who, while he did eventually find a single season or two in the NHL consistently. He was with the crunch for quite a while and he was super talented and he was older and fans got to know his face and got to know him as a reliable guy to have out there. Even guys like Darcy Vareau, who was here for an entire season and then a 
about a quarter of the season before that in 2005-2006. Again, he was an older guy. Fans got to know him. Fans got to like him. He was here to play. He was here to win. Steven Gertzen was one of those guys that was here for a long time. Fans got to know him. Fans got to like him. Alexander Picard, who I know Lightning fans were slightly acquainted with when he played for Norfolk during their championship season in 2011-2012. Well, before he was with Norfolk and before he was with San Antonio, he was with the Crunch for a long time. Jamie Pusher, I have my feelings about him. I have my feelings about the way he left Syracuse. But again, he's a guy that fits this profile. Everybody remembers Trevor Frischman. If you're a Crunch fan from 2007, 2008 especially, you remember Trevor. You know what he did during the first round series against Manitoba in 2008. That overtime goal has gone down as one of the best in Crunch history. He absolutely fit this mold. All of these guys that I'm mentioning played for the Crunch pretty much during the same time period. Dan Smith, one of my absolute favorites to ever pull on a uniform, and fans got to know him. If we shift into the Lightning era, y'all know me, you know where I'm going with this. When we look at that 2012-13 team, it was full of guys who were older, who were a lot of fun, really quick, rapid-fire, without involving a ton of emotion into this. We had Mike Angelitas. We had PC Labrie. We had Philip Parody, who is here. He was a little bit younger than I remember him being, but he was still somebody that the fans got to know, got to know well, and who wasn't really going to be making the NHL. He wasn't a prospect. He was kind of that middle guy. Eric Nielsen, Matt Taramina, J.P. Cote. Even if you look at some of the guys that kind of came in a little bit later, we had Jared Nightingale, who was a pretty recognizable name. He's still somebody that brings his Great Lakes hockey camp back to Syracuse because this was one of the places where his pro career really gave him the chance to get to know the area. Joey Mormina was here for the better part of three seasons. He absolutely fits this mold. Kevin Lynch was here on and off throughout four different seasons. David Broll, Dalton Smith, even Dan Saxton, who kind of bridged two different organizations with Syracuse. These are those middling guys that Crunch fans really got to know and can kind of pull out of their minds whenever they think back on impact that these guys made. Especially, of course, the Angelitas, Cote, Nielsen, Taramina crowd. Nobody can deny the impact that those older players, whose chances with the NHL were kind of iffy. I know Cote had his time as the oldest prospect in the Lightning organization, as he liked to put it. And obviously, Mike Angelitas did go up and down a little bit during his time, but the majority of the years he spent here, he was here, and fans got to know him. Looking at our current team, that kind of player is kind of in short supply. Corey Conacher could also maybe be one of those players, and obviously he is definitely someone that Crunch fans are familiar with. He has spent quite a bit of his AHL career in Syracuse from the first time the Lightning were, were affiliated with Syracuse until the last four seasons. So I do suppose that Conacher can be in this group, and I certainly feel like Crunch fans know Conacher really well. They know about 
his efforts to get recognition for type 1 diabetes. They know what kind of a player he is. But when you look at previous years that were just full of this group of players, we're kind of missing that right now. It seems like that shift started in 2016-17, but as I discussed the last time we were together, that season we had the lip sync videos that really kind of showed us the different personalities. And so I don't think that I, in particular, noticed this shift then. I think that now it is becoming much more apparent that this is a thing that has happened And it could be the lightning philosophy trying to maximize the cupboard, as it were, trying to make sure that there's enough talent in Syracuse, trying to, you know, not caring so much about that balance anymore between a solid group of middling veterans and the prospects. It also could be speaking to the amount of young talent that's currently in the organization. We have a lot of young guys right now that are in their second or third career AHL season or their first career AHL season, and they're making up a great majority of our roster. So it could just also be that, you know, hey, this is kind of what our situation is right now as an organization. We don't quote unquote have to have those guys that fit the Mike Angelitas, J.P. Cote, Eric Nielsen, Matt Taramina description because we have other options that we need to have on roster because they're ready and keeping them in juniors or whatever or the ECHL is just not enough competition to really encourage their development. So it's very possible that this shift that I am personally kind of feeling uncomfortable with just because it's different from what I have known for the majority of my time as a Crunch fan, is just due to circumstances in the organization right now. Maybe this feeling that I have is just a my is just a me thing. Maybe nobody else is feeling this way. Maybe nobody else is feeling like they have a lack of connection to the guys on this team because they don't really know them. Maybe nobody else cares. Maybe this is just a mental shift that I have to make that I haven't been able to push through yet. Again, I would love to hear your opinions on all of this. Um, Regardless, I hope that at the very least, hearing some of these names brought back some good memories from previous seasons. of full disclosure, I have no problem admitting that I actually recorded the opening segment and the ending segment of this podcast on Sunday night. It is now Monday, and it is right about 6 o'clock, so the NHL trade deadline craziness is officially over, and we have some things to talk about. Thankfully, they aren't as bad for Syracuse as I initially feared. So the Lightning actually began their trade deadline craziness with a move yesterday where they signed a defenseman for themselves. 
The Lightning has had a lot of defensemen go down with injury. They've had Chernak, Rutta, and McDonough all go down with injuries, and only Chernak looks ready to return anytime soon. So the Lightning were in desperate need of defensemen. So they went out and got defenseman, whose first name is Zach, and whose last name is I'm too good for the AHL and refused to report to Rochester. So the Buffalo Sabres terminated my contract, and now the Lightning have me, so yay. Because they went out and got a defenseman, they were actually able to assign Cameron Gauntz to Syracuse today, which originally we were kind of figuring was just going to be a paper transaction because we didn't know how close any of the other defensemen were to returning. But with Chernak hoping to play in the Lightning's game on Tuesday, Tampa was actually able to send Cameron Gauntz down to Syracuse for good. So he will physically be here pending any other problems up in the Lightning with injuries which is good for Syracuse. This is really good for Syracuse. Gauntz has had a like a point per game up with the Lightning since he got called up a couple of weeks ago. He has played really, really well, and he's gotten a lot of chatter on social media, and it was really exciting to see. It'll be great to have him back. He's gained a lot of awesome experience over the past couple of weeks as he was up with Tampa working with them. I'm so pleased that he wasn't riding the bench the whole time. I am so glad that they gave him playing time, and it will be great to see him again. And that's not just because I kind of want to get my Cameron Gaunt's Miracle on Ice tribute jersey signed by him. That's also because it'll be good to see him on the ice. The other thing that happened was initially something I was super unsure about. So right at the end of the trade deadline, because of course it did, news broke that the Lightning had traded for a forward. There wasn't initially a lot of information on this particular trade. And in fact, the information didn't come out until I think almost an hour and a half after the trade had been announced. So the Lightning traded for forward Barclay Goodrow from the San Jose Sharks. And in return... They ended up trading a first-round pick and forward Anthony Greco, who was just added to Syracuse less than a week ago. So initially, my response to this trade was one of annoyance. It wasn't horrible. It certainly could have been worse. The Lightning have way more interesting trade bait than Anthony Greco sitting in Syracuse right now. But I think that one thing that the Lightning has proven that they're not really willing to do is gamble with their future. And so when you look at players like the Veggie or Kachuk or Barre Boule, they're not yet willing to part with those guys. I think that things up in Tampa would have to be a lot more desperate for them to really look at rating Syracuse in that way. So initially my thought was, okay, this is annoying. The Lightning have kind of sacrificed their farm team for their own benefit. I hate trades like that. I do try to keep perspective. I understand where the Lightning is coming from. They're going all in on this playoff run. They want depth up there as well as in Syracuse so that they can go far just in case injuries hit. I get that. But at the same time, I'm a fan of the Syracuse Crunch. And I, whether we make the playoffs or not, want to be seeing a team that is good and a team that's competitive on the ice for the remainder of the season. 
So initially my response to this trade was annoyance. And the only thing that was consoling me was the idea of a forward being sent down on paper to potentially play for Syracuse down the stretch if the Lightning got healthy enough to be able to do it. And that forward, there was kind of a toss-up between Mitchell Stevens and Carter Verhage. Verhage kind of was on the NHL side of that toss-up simply because of the waiver situation where Stevens didn't require waivers. So originally we weren't exactly positive who the Lightning was going to send down. Many people figured that if we were going to see a paper transaction today, it was going to be Stevens and not Verhage. Well, not long after news of the Goodrow trade broke, news also came out that the Lightning had sent Mitchell Stevens to Syracuse with expectations that he is going to play. So this is not a paper transaction. This is an actual physical show up of Mitchell Stevens in Syracuse. The Lightning expects him to get a ton of playing time in, which is something he wouldn't have gotten with the Lightning down the stretch. And they expect that he is going to come to Syracuse and improve his game even more so that next season in the fall, he can show up to the Lightning camp, make the roster right out at the start of the season and be up all season long. That is what he has been charged with. And that is what hopefully Syracuse will benefit from as long as he shows up motivated to do just that. We all know how these send-downs can work, especially right before the push to the playoffs starts. It can be kind of depressing for these guys to come down here. But as I've said before, the best way to show the Lightning that they're wrong, they made a mistake, that you're ready to go, is to come down to Syracuse and play hard and play well. So that's what Stevens is charged with. And... Basically, Syracuse's net gain is a Gaunce and a Stevens over a Greco. And, you know, Greco was still kind of an unknown. He looked all right this past weekend. He was adjusting to the systems that Syracuse plays. He was adjusting to new teammates. He certainly showed off his bursts of speed, but he was still pretty much an unknown. And I never really like judging unknowns because we don't know what his potential here could have been. He could go to the San Jose organization and score a million goals for the Barracuda and have a great end of the season and whatever. But we don't know that he would have done that here. And we don't know if he's actually going to do that anyways. So I am not really concerned about losing him now that we have gotten Mitchell Stevens physically back here. Had that not happened, had it just been a paper transaction, I might have been a little worried, no lie. And again, I was a little annoyed at the start of all of this because I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. But at this point in time, I think that this has helped Syracuse a lot. I think that this kind of turned out the best way it possibly could have for the organization and for the team in Syracuse. And I think that it is absolutely a reason for this cautious optimism that has started to surround the crunch in the past couple of weeks to continue. The first time we sat down together during the month of February, Syracuse was in the basement of the North Division. In fact, you all were treated to my live and in-person 
reaction to seeing that Syracuse had fallen to eighth place in the North Division for the first time all season during that podcast because I looked at the standings for the first time in a while and was rudely awakened by how far Syracuse had fallen. As of this recording, through the month of February, the Crunch has had the second best previous 10 record in the North Division, and they have used their six wins, one overtime loss, and two shootout losses. They have used the points from those games to propel themselves from eighth place to fourth place in the North Division. So for the first time, pretty much since the start of the season, the Syracuse Crunch is in a playoff spot. And they're solidly in a playoff spot. Now, not only are they solidly in a playoff spot, fifth place Binghamton has 58 points to Syracuse's 61. The Crunch is two points behind third place Utica, and they're seven points behind second place Rochester. We won't look at first place. Belleville has been really rocketing up the standings over the past couple of months, and the Syracuse Crunch may have the second best previous 10 record in the division, but the Belleville Senators has the best previous 10 record in the division. Although, to be fair, not by much. There's a disparity there for sure, but looking at where the Crunch was two months ago, it's a really good sign that they have kind of gone on a run this month and have been able to push themselves into a playoff spot. As always in this league, nothing is certain. The Crunch still have quite a few injured players. It would be great if we could get some guys back to get some of our old consistency. But the positive thing is that the remaining players on the roster have stepped into those roles that have been missing because of call-ups or injuries. Syracuse has been without the services of Gauntz because of a call-up of Conacher and Jamel Smith and Nolan Valu because of injuries. Luke Wachowski was also injured in there for a little while. We've had a lot of ups and downs. We're now also currently without the services of Dennis Yan, and I'm not sure when he's expected back. As players have gone up to Tampa, as players have gotten bit by the injury bug, other players have stepped up and have said, we're going to continue to try to win this thing even though we are missing some guys. And that right there is the playoff attitude that we have been missing in this team. That right there is the kind of attitude, effort, and drive that will get this team into a playoff spot. Is the Syracuse Crunch perfect? Dear God, no, they are far from it. And anybody who tries to tell you any differently is dreaming. There is still a lot for this team to work on but they are absolutely in a much better position at this point in time with the roster that they have, with the players that will hopefully be returning from injury sometime soon, to keep themselves in that playoff position and to possibly even push higher. Is it too soon to talk about pushing for home ice? Yeah, I I kind of think so. Syracuse has, as always, a tough road ahead of them when you look at the rest of the season. You know, the good news is the entire month of March, except for one lone game against Hershey, is against the North Division. 
And it's against teams that are either chasing Syracuse in the standings or Syracuse is chasing in the standings. Something to keep an eye on is that Wednesday, March 11th game against Utica, as the Comets are right in front of Syracuse in the standings, along with the Tuesday, March 17th game versus Utica, the March 22nd game versus Utica, and the 22nd game versus Utica. Those are eight points right there that are going to look real juicy at the end of the month if the Crunch managed to get them. Syracuse also has some tests against the number one team in the division, Belleville. They'll play them twice. And they play Toronto a bunch. So it's going to be a testing month. How Syracuse responds during the month of March will probably make or break their playoff hopes. Again, there's a lot of cautious optimism surrounding this team right now, which is a heck of a lot more than we can say for how we felt just even a month or two ago. of this podcast talking about the various levels of discomfort I have with the current makeup of the team. But I want to shift now as we start to bring this podcast to a close to some great things that the organization as a whole has been doing lately and will be doing in the immediate future. And the first thing I want to discuss is the gorgeous Miracle on Ice anniversary jerseys that the team wore two weeks ago. I think these were executed incredibly well. I think that considering the history to New York State and the connections that are there, this was absolutely an apt tribute to make. Although I was born in 1985, so I was not alive for the 1980 game in Lake Placid versus the Soviet Union, and then versus Finland. It is something that as I have become more familiar with hockey, I have really started to grasp the historical impact of that game. The movie that came out a couple years ago obviously has played a large part in that. I do enjoy that movie. I watch it several times a year, and it is one of my favorites for sure. Given the history Given the local connections, given the historical impact, I think that it was so cool that the Crunch chose to recognize this 40th anniversary and the way that they did it, the way that the jerseys looked, it was gorgeous. I'm very honored and excited that I was able to get my hands on Cameron Gauntz's jersey from that evening. It is something that I will always cherish. It's one of those jerseys that it's imperative that as a fan I had, and it's wonderful to be able to add one of those to my collection. Along those same lines, this past weekend, Syracuse had their You Can Play, Everyone Can Play Pride Night at the War Memorial, and those rainbow jerseys were fantastic. It was very interesting, disheartening, and also joyful, depending on the comment that I was reading, to see the various reactions to these jerseys, to the Pride Night, around social media. 
And I don't want to touch on this too much because there's nothing to be gained by giving airtime to people who found such issues with the team showing their inclusiveness by wearing rainbow jerseys. But I will say that if you are someone who had a real issue with a hockey team expressing inclusiveness, I would like that you take a look inside as to why that bothered you so much and why it doesn't bother you when the team wears lavender jerseys for cancer awareness or when the team wears St. Patrick's Day jerseys for St. Patrick's Day or when they do anything else that changes the color or the logo or whatever of the jerseys that they're wearing. There were a lot of people who tried to make this political, which is frustrating to me because to me, it's not political to be a decent human being and express this idea that everybody who comes to play hockey should be able to have the same comfort level. Because to me, that's really what this is about. It's about the fact that when everybody steps onto the ice, they should have the same comfort level and they should be entitled to the same comfort level as everybody else. Everybody should be entitled to feel like they are welcome and that things like hate speech are not okay and that the organization is pledging to work against hate and to bring that comfort level and to show outwardly that we are in support of that comfort level. I think that it was a really nice touch for the evening that it was not optional. In the past, it has always been kind of discouraging to see which players chose not to use Pride Tape in previous Pride Night games, just as it was discouraging to see who chose not to use lavender tape or pink tape when it was time to speak up against cancer. You know, this this idea that, God forbid, you have a traditionally feminine color on your stick. Oh my God, the world is ending. That was discouraging to see. And I have to admit, regardless of the reasons behind particular players not using pride tape, I judged them for it. Full stop. Because to me, it looked like they were making some kind of statement that they weren't going to use it because reasons. And again, to me, there is no reason to not just be a decent human being that understands how important it is for somebody to feel comfortable. I saw some discussion about how certain people wouldn't let slurs and hate speech prevent them from playing the game that they love. And all I could think about was that clearly they have never encountered that kind of a thing because I would imagine that hearing things day in and day out that basically is saying that who you are is wrong and bad would absolutely impact your comfort level and ability to play hockey. So the statement that the Crunch was making with the whole team united wearing those rainbow jerseys, whether each individual player personally approves of that, it didn't matter because the organization as a whole is saying, we are working towards inclusiveness. We are working at getting better. We are working at educating and we are working at getting past old prejudices that make it difficult for members of the LGBT plus community 
to play hockey. That's beautiful. And I'm really proud to be a Crunch fan after seeing all of that. Moving a little bit away from jerseys to the next big event in the charitable arm of the team, the Crunch at Your Service dinner is coming up in less than a week now. And it is Monday, March 2nd. I wanted to kind of give a a personal invitation to any fan, season ticket holder, who has not yet decided on whether they are going to come to this event or not. I have gone to this event ever since the Crunch brought it back a couple seasons ago. I think it's been three seasons, if I'm not mistaken. The first year was in Syracuse, and then the last two have been at Turning Stone. I have never regretted going no matter the distance or the drive I've had to make, whether it's been Syracuse or whether it's been in Turning Stone. I completely understand the hesitation to driving out to Turning Stone for this kind of an event. I totally get it. Believe me, I have had conversations with the team about this because I think that these events are better if they are held in the city where the team plays. However, I also understand that there's two sides to this, and the organization side is that they need to keep Turning Stone happy. Turning Stone is one of our major sponsors. This is something that they have worked into their agreement with Turning Stone to help keep Turning Stone on board with us and to help keep their money coming into the team, which is really important to the organization. So I will say that Turning Stone puts on a great event. The food has been good both years that we have gone there. The first year was a sit-down dinner. The second year was a buffet like it is this year. I personally liked the buffet better anyways. Getting a chance to bid on those exclusive items that the team has during the silent auction before the actual event is really cool. And if you're a fan who is not a season ticket holder, This event actually gives you a chance to kind of interact with the team like a season ticket holder gets to at season ticket holder events without having the expense of actually being a season ticket holder. Turning Stone is a beautiful casino. If you've never been out there before, their ballrooms and conference rooms and places that have these things are set up really nicely. It's a lot of fun seeing the players be a little bit more casual You know, I spent a lot of time at the start of this podcast discussing how I am unfamiliar with some of the personalities. This event does help me to see some of that, and I'm kind of hopeful, to be honest, that this event allows me to kind of see a little bit more of these guys. I haven't been able to go to the previous events that the team has had. I refuse to go to the Welcome to Town event because of the principles we just talked about. I think the Welcome to Town event should be in town, and I wasn't going to drive all the way out to Turning Stone for an event that doesn't include food or drink and is not long enough, in my opinion, to warrant the drive. However, this event does include those things. And personally, I kind of look at it as a way to get a little bit dressed up for the evening, I like that it's a charity event. The proceeds from this event go to the Crunch Foundation, which is connected to a lot of different organizations that the Syracuse Crunch reaches out to and gives money to over the season. One of the highlights of last year's event was former Captain Gabriel Dumont 
leading the entire team in Baby Shark. <laughs> it was adorable and fun. Again, it was seeing these guys in a goofy way that we don't normally get to see them. If you are someone who is on the fence about whether you are going to go to this or not, there is still about a week left for you to get your tickets, get a table together, do what you need to do, and don't think that you have to get a table together in order to go. The crunch puts people together, so just order your tickets in a block and they will you know, figure that out for you. Generally, the players and the staff are split up among the tables. It is a lot of fun. And I definitely encourage people who want to go, to go. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'd like to thank Eddie for the royalty-free track, Pure Adrenaline, our intro music, and Springtide for their track, We Are Heading Into the East, our segment music. As always, thanks so much for listening, and feel free to send me any questions, comment, or feedback, either at my Twitter, at Alovimo, A-L-L-O-V-I-M-O, or over on Raw Charge. See you next time. (laughs) 